Bibles open, uh, we're going to focus in on Exodus 17, 1 to 7 this evening. Exodus 17, 1 to 7, so that's back on page 75. It would be great if you had that open in front of you as we consider what it is that the Lord would say to us through this part of his word this evening. But just before we do that, let me pray once more, please. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would indeed be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last Sunday evening, uh, if you were with us, um, Dick walked us through Exodus chapter 16, and we were reminded of God's gracious provision of manna, of the bread from heaven that the Lord provided for the Israelites, having brought them out of Egypt, having brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, right through the center of those death waters of judgment, unscathed to the other side, and into the desert. And they became hungry in the desert, and God provided wonderfully for them with bread from heaven. Well, this evening, uh, I thought we would continue with this Exodus narrative as we continue to hear of God's provision for his people in this passage about the water that comes from the rock. And they're really, uh, we're really going to just look at a few basics this evening, uh, three R's, if you'll allow me to put it that way. And here it is. Uh, the first is this, the rebellion of God's people. The second is the rock of God's provision. And the third, the rod of God's judgment. The rebellion of God's people, the rock of God's provision, and the rod of God's judgment. And after having looked at those three elements of this text, what I really hope that we will come away with is a greater sense of the fact that we can rejoice in the rock of God's provision. We can rejoice with all of our hearts in the rock of God's provision. So let's see how this is so as we come to this text uh, this evening. Exodus 17, 1-7. In these opening verses, we see, don't we, the rebellion of God's people. We had already seen last week that they were grumbling in the desert, complaining about how good it used to be in Egypt. They'd already forgotten what the oppression was like. They wanted food. Their stomachs led them to it, if you will. And again, we have the same kind of thing here. We have grumbling and complaining. Uh, Perhaps you know someone in your life who is an incessant grumbler or complainer. Hopefully it's not you, yourself. Uh, Perhaps you know what it's like to have children at times around uh, who, for whatever reason, tiredness, illness, just being out of sorts, just can't seem to stop grumbling. So whether it's at Christmas and all the wonderful gifts have been opened, but it's grumbling at what wasn't received, or whether it's, in fact, on holiday when it's been a lovely day, you've been swimming, you've had a great time, ice creams, and yet grumbling for more, grumbling, complaining for more. Uh, Perhaps you can think of other examples of this kind of thing in your own life, but I think we all know what it's like to be with someone who is 
an insufferable complainer, an incessant grumbler. In some ways, it seems like this ought to be a very minor sort of offense, doesn't it? A minor character flaw. But actually, when you're around a person, or when you notice, even worse, that you yourself are becoming this kind of person, a grumbler, you realize that this is reflective of a very deep-rooted sin in our hearts. That grumbling opens a window into the darkness of ingratitude and a lack of faith in God's provision in our hearts. And that's exactly what we see in verses 1 to 3. Let's go back to those three verses, if you would, with me. The whole Israelite community, verse 1, we're told, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? They're thirsty, and they're grumbling, and they're quarreling. Now, on the one hand, we could say this is an outrageous response on their part, isn't it? Look at what's just happened in chapter 16. What has Yahweh, their Lord, done for them? He has provided bread from heaven every single morning to meet all of their needs. Not a single one of them has gone hungry. Not a single day have they not had enough to eat. And that is continuing to be the case even now in chapter 17. God is providing miraculously manna from heaven every day. And doesn't that make this grumbling, this complaining, all the more distasteful? This is an outrageous response of ingratitude on the part of the people. They've got manna. Do they not think that the Lord might provide for their thirst, but they don't come asking, they don't come requesting, they come quarreling, they come complaining and contending with Moses and the Lord. Now, from another perspective, I suppose we could say this is a very understandable complaint. They're thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty? Really thirsty? Gone without water for very long? And if you have, you know that you can get pretty grumpy. And uh, despite your best intentions, you might tend toward this kind of response yourself. So while it is outrageous, we can also understand that in their frailty, these people are thirsty. And so we have some sympathy, some empathy for their complaint here. But in the end, in the context of these verses, what is the verdict that God gives on their grumbling. Well, what does Moses say in verse 2? Why do you quarrel with me, he says, and then a parallel question that interprets it further for us, doesn't it? What are the people really doing when they come to Moses with this sharp complaint, this quarrel? What are they really doing? Well, look at the second half of that statement by Moses. Why do you put the Lord to the test? They were not simply grumbling against Moses, their human leader. 
They were grumbling against the Lord who had set Moses over them as his servant to lead them through the desert, to lead them through the wilderness. And so every complaint, this one included, against Moses was a complaint against the Lord. And that's why this grumbling is simply unacceptable. It is a sinful grumbling. It's sin. Their quarrel and their response here is sin. Why is this such a terrible sin? It's because, as we've said, it lays bare the ingratitude, ungrateful attitude of their hearts, rather than crying out to God, thanking him for the manna they'd received, and then asking him to provide for their thirst, they come this way. They come with ingratitude, ungrateful for what the Lord has done. And further, they come showing their utter lack of faith in Yahweh, who has provided and continues to provide for them. They are faithless as they quarrel with Moses and the Lord in this text. They are untrusting in their hearts. And what is it that they don't trust? Let's let's just pause on that for a moment. What is it about the Lord that they do not trust that leads them to this complaint? Well, it's a lack of trust in God's provision, yes, which is tangible, which they can taste with their tongues, which they need because of their thirst. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than the physical provision that God has provided. It's a lack of trust in the very character of Yahweh, the God who has promised to Moses, I will lead my people out and I will be faithful to lead them all the way to the promised land. I will be who I will be. Yahweh said to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.12. And that was the message that Moses took back to the Israelites in captivity in Egypt and proclaimed to them that Yahweh has heard your groaning. He's heard your complaint and he's come to rescue you. Do you see how this text shows us that they have continued to demonstrate a lack of faith and trust in the very character of the God who has made those promises, not only the God who has provided for their physical needs. This is a lack of faith in the very character of a God who promises, in the perfection of that God who promises, in the sufficiency of that God who promises, and in the loving care of that God promises. They don't trust that God is who he has said he will be, that God is in fact consistent with his promises, that his character will not change, that with him there is no shadow of turning, that he has not abandoned them in the desert. That's what they lack when they quarrel and grumble against the Lord. And that's why it's such a great sin. And so, brothers and sisters, this evening, we have to examine ourselves in light of this text, in light of Psalm 95, which we have just sung, and we need to ask ourselves a difficult question, and it's this. Do we trust in our God as perfect as the one who keeps his promises, as the one who loves us, 
and provides for us. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? We have to examine ourselves this evening and ask, are we not, like these Israelites, too often those who grumble, those who complain, those who say, well, Lord, if only, if only you might do it differently, if only you might do it this way, if only you might provide according to what I think I need and the timing that I think I need. Examine your heart with me just now before God's word and ask yourself, even over this past week, are there ways in which you have grumbled, ways in which you have complained, ways in which you have been ungrateful for the utter provision and faithfulness of your God over the past year? This time of year as we pause to reflect as we enter into the new year. And we look back on God's faithfulness and his pro- to his promises. His faithfulness to us as his people. His wonderful provision even above and beyond what we dared to ask him. And yet are we grateful for that? Or do we present ourselves to the Lord as little children around the table asking for the one thing we've not been given. Are we grumblers? Are we complainers before God? Because we are doubters. Because we do not recall the perfect provision, the perfect love, the perfect faithfulness of our God. We need to examine ourselves this evening. And if we find, in fact, that, yes, we are those who grumble and complain and doubt God, doubt his perfect plan in our own lives, then we need to humble ourselves. We need to confess that sin before him this evening. We need to ask him. We need to ask him for forgiveness for that sin and to change us by his spirit into those who are truly grateful people grateful for all that he has provided for us and grateful to him for calling us his children and for declaring himself to be our father. 1 Corinthians 10:13 which Paul read earlier says yes we will face trials and even temptations in this life but there is no such trial no such difficulty no such circumstance that isn't already common to human experience. And God is faithful. God is faithful. And he provide for us a way of escape. It's a wonderful little word picture, actually. A way out. It's as if there's an army trapped in a valley before their enemy, overwhelmed by the enemy. And there, over the ridge, comes a way of escape, a rescue, and a rear guard so that his people the Lord's people can escape through the pass. That's the image in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Will you trust the Lord who promises to provide that way of escape whenever you are tempted, even tempted to grumble, tempted to complain, tempted to be ungrateful, tempted to doubt the Lord and his goodness? Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 refer back to this as well through Psalm 95 and make the point that as long as it is called today, as long as the Lord waits, as long as the Lord tarries and does not return in judgment, as long as he shows his mercy and his patience by granting us breath and life, as long as it is called today, let us not harden our hearts 
the writer of Hebrews says, like those people in the desert. But let's open our hearts. Let us cry out to the Lord to give us the grace of soft hearts and repentant hearts and open ears that we could hear the gospel promises that these people heard but rejected again and again and again. Will you make that your prayer this week, that the Lord would give you a soft heart, a trusting heart, a grateful heart, that you could cling to his promises? And if you're here this evening and the Lord Jesus, uh, to put it quite starkly, is not your Lord because you have not come to him in repentance and faith, then can I plead with you? Can I plead with you in those same words from Hebrews 3 and 4? While it is still called today, do not harden your heart. Turn to the Lord, this Lord that we see even in the text this evening, who was so gracious to provide for a people that did not deserve it. Turn to that Lord through Jesus Christ and cling to him by faith that he might provide for you everything that you need, even those things that you did not know that you needed, but most of all, forgiveness for your sins and new life. We see here the rebellion of God's people, and we know that's a rebellion that we are all guilty of in our hearts, and yet there is repentance. There is repentance for us if we turn to the Lord Jesus. We see also a rock here as well, that the rebellious people find themselves led to a rock, and it is the rock of God's provision. We see that in verses 5 to 7. Let me read those uh, just once more for us. Uh, Pick it up in verse 4, actually. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Moses asks the Lord, What am I to do with this rebellious people? And the Lord says, Lead them to the rock. Lead them to the rock where I will provide for them. Again, I asked you earlier if perhaps you've had a time in your life when you have been really thirsty. I I know for me, uh, one of those times that stands out was when I was in university and I spent some time studying in uh, the Holy Land, lived in Jerusalem for a time, and with a friend, went off uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, actually, but not down the road. Instead, we thought we'd take, uh, take a nice hike through the Wadi Kelt. The Wadis, of course, are those deep valleys, those gorges that run down towards the Dead Sea and for most of the year are bone dry. Only when the occasional rain comes do they gush with water and things flower for a brief season and then again it's dry, dust, rock, but it's beautiful. And so we set out in November thinking, right, it's not the, that's not the heat of summer, we'll be all right. We took a little bit of food, we took our packs, and we took what we thought was enough water. 
a few water bottles full, as much as we could carry and thought we would need. And we thought, well, surely, November, surely there's going to be a little bit of fresh water along the way. We've got some things to purify the water with. No worries, we'll be fine. Well, guess what? We, of course, misjudged. And so day two, after hiking in the hot, hot sun beating down on us, crawling up and over and under rocks that were fallen, and we were still not even close to Jericho, where we had hoped to catch the bus back, we were completely out of water, and we were thirsty, and we were hot. And it is that moment when you feel your... Uh, your tongue begin to swell. You feel yourself go with kind of cold sweats because you know you're running out of hydration. You know that you need water desperately. That's the kind of thirst these people are faced with. It's not simply that they're thirsty, like a little child who's in the car on the way to service and says, I want a drink. No, that's, it's not a luxury thirst. This is a thirst of life or death. They need water. They're in the desert. All of them, all of the people that the Lord has brought out from Egypt. Can you imagine the host of people? We don't know exactly how many, probably over a million people. There, there's no water, and they are desperately thirsty. It's a matter of life and death. And yes, they've sinned. Yes, they've rebelled. Yes, they've quarreled and accused Moses and the Lord. Yes, the Lord would have been absolutely righteous and just to strike them all down. Just there. In fact, isn't that sort of what you expect after you hear that? What's what's the Lord's response going to be? Is he going to get angry? Is he going to pour out his wrath and judgment upon these ungrateful, rebellious people? But instead, what is his response? What is his response? What kind of God is this? His response is to lead them to the rock and to provide water. As Psalm 78 says, we sang earlier, rivers of water flowing from this rock, enough water to quench all of their thirst, all of their thirst, that entire massive group of people, not one person left thirsty. And not only that, Numbers 20 tells us a very similar story that at the end or towards the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert, guess what? Again, they're being provided for by this rock. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us in in verse 4, the rock followed them those 40 years. Not only did God provide bread from heaven every single day, he provided water for them every single day. Do you, do you understand the magnitude of this response by the Lord? That rather than judging a grumbling, rebellious, sinful people, God shows himself to be absolutely gracious. He's a gracious God, even in response to his grumbling people. He pours out waters of blessing upon them. Jesus said in John chapter 7, uh, as they were at the end of a feast, a Jewish feast which celebrated water in Jerusalem, pointing to the living water that had been foretold again and again in the Old Testament. Jesus said, come to me and I will be to you a fountain of living water, overflowing with life. Just as he had said earlier in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, 
The one who comes to me and drinks of the water that I provide will never thirst again. Do you see what kind of God this is? This is a gracious God, responding to grumbling sinners with grace upon grace and living waters flowing through his son, the Lord Jesus. He led the people to the rock. And what did they find there? Not judgment, not wrath, not condemnation, not even a trickle of provision, but an overflowing abundance of provision as water came from the rock. That was the rock of God's provision. And so we must ask ourselves again this evening, friends, how is it that the Lord provides for us? Let's reflect just for a moment on this God who provides so richly, so graciously for his people. How has he provided for us even in our daily bread, even in those things that we simply need for life, for health, the food that we eat, the blessing of homes, all of those daily provisions just reflect for a moment on how richly God has provided for you in the last year. If you're anything like me, you are overwhelmed with the ways in which God has provided for you, unlooked for, sometimes even unasked for, Sometimes those things that you, you you don't even think to pray about and that God provides for you. God is a God of provision daily. He's the one who provides our daily bread. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because as John 7 reminds us, God provides not only for us physically, he provides richly for our spiritual needs, our deepest needs through the Lord Jesus. When we embrace the Lord Jesus by faith, we find rivers of living water flowing into our souls, making us refreshed and alive, blossoming within us so that we can grow and bear fruit for him. That's the kind of blessing that we find in this gracious God as we come to the rock of his provision, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, are you trusting in the rock of God's provision? Are you trusting in the one that Paul says in chapter 10, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians, who was the rock? He was the rock, the Lord Jesus. Are you trusting in him? Are you coming to him with all of your thirst, with all of your need? What do you need? What do you need for this year? What do you need for this week? What do you need for tomorrow? What do you need? Do you realize that the Lord delights to provide it for you? That he delights to pour out blessing for you? This is the God whom we serve. Come to him by faith. Come to his rock and be overwhelmed by blessing. So we see a rebellious people. We see a rock where God provides. But we want to finish by looking at the rod of God's judgment, because we're left with a question if we're careful readers of this text. And maybe you've already seen it. Maybe you've already noticed there is a missing piece here. How is it possible that God, gracious though he might be, can provide in this way for a grumbling, sinful people? How is that possible? Because not only do we expect that God might react in anger and wrath and judgment, actually, that is what those people deserve, is it not? 
They have sinned against the Lord. They deserve judgment. He responds instead with grace and blessing. How is this possible? We ask the same question for ourselves, don't we? How is it possible that a God can respond, a holy God, a perfect God, a God of gracious provision, can respond this way, can overlook seemingly the sin of a grumbling people? How is that possible? It's only possible because of the rod of judgment. And we see that in this text. Look at what happens right there in the middle of this text. God answers Moses, doesn't he? And he says what? He says, take the elders. Do you see twice the elders appear there? Take the elders. And then again, once they're at the rock, it happens before the elders. So there are elders who are there. That is, there are people who are designated as judges of God's people. There's a rod. Moses is meant to take the rod. What is this rod? This is the rod with which he struck the Nile. What was that representing? That was the very judgment of God upon Egypt for their idolatrous rebellion against Yahweh when Pharaoh said, Who is this Yahweh? I have not known him. God struck Egypt with the rod of judgment. There's a rod of judgment. There are elders to witness judgment, and they come before this rock. This, brothers and sisters, is a courtroom scene. In fact, if we doubted it, there is no doubt by the time we come to verse 7, because what is the name of the place? It is Massah and Meribah. The very place is called testing and quarrel, or better yet, a courtroom case and contending. Do you remember? They were told earlier in the chapter that when you contend against Moses, you contend against me, says the Lord. This is Yahweh's response to a lawsuit that the people have brought against him. They have called into question his faithfulness and his character, and he is coming to respond with judgment. That's what is signified by this rod in Moses' hand. But what does he tell Moses to do with the rod? Where does the judgment fall? Because judgment must fall for sin. Where does it fall? It does not fall upon the people. It does not fall upon Moses. Do you see what Yahweh says? He says, where is Yahweh in this scene? He's there, isn't he? He's there. He says where he'll be in verse 6. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Brothers and sisters, do you know who is being struck here? Who is receiving the rod of justice and judgment rather than those people who deserved it? This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Rock was Christ. The Lord stood there and the Lord took the symbolic judgment represented by that staff, that rod striking the rock, and he took it upon himself. That's where the judgment fell. And it had to do so because he had already promised to this people way back in the time of Abram in Genesis 15. He said, I will bless you and bless those who bless you and I will only and ever bless you and I will curse those who curse you. 
and he took an oath and he passed between animals which had been cut in half, in effect saying, if I ever have to curse you, Abram, or your descendants, my people, instead of cursing you, do you know what I'll do? I will take that curse upon myself. I will be ripped in half. I will receive the judgment in your place. And again here in Exodus 17, the Lord shows that rather than judge his people, even though they deserve it, he will receive the judgment in his own person. The rock was Christ. And it was Jesus Christ who took the blow of judgment for his people and who takes that blow of judgment and justice and wrath that we deserve. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you this evening as we close, knowing that we, like the Israelites, are a rebellious people, knowing that we question God, that we doubt God, that we doubt his perfection and his goodness and his faithfulness, that we deserve, therefore, his wrath and condemnation. Yet we find him to be a gracious God, a God who pours out living water into our very souls. How can we not rejoice? How can we not rejoice at the rock of God's provision, knowing that the Lord Jesus himself has taken our judgment so that we might receive blessing, even blessing of living waters, and a blessing that will never be revoked. Let us rejoice this evening and let that joy take us into this week with a trust in this gracious God whom we love and whom we serve. Amen.